When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. A special edition of the Ramon Foster Show. I told you guys I, he'd be on and he's here. I was a little late. He wasn't. Okay, I just got a preference by saying that. Uh, I appreciate his time. I appreciate his friendship and his t- him being a teammate, man. Pittsburgh's own Charlie Badger. Not Pittsburgh. Homestead's own. Charlie Bass, man. Welcome to the Ramon Foster Show. Hey, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate this. Absolutely, man. Well, Charlie's one of those guys, man, that's always had his house open, his mind open, and just his hands and arms open to receive all young guys, teach them the ropes, man. Chuck, let's just start there because I we had a common friend uh, and Mel and we he told me about you and he was like man Chuck does this Chuck does. I'm like who the heck is Chuck man I didn't really know at the time but you've always been the lending hand type of guy why, where did that come from why is that your way and what actually got you to that position of look your house was open to anybody well, for me, I just remember being a young guy in Detroit. You know, my family was in Pittsburgh, and here I was as a young rookie with the Lions back in 1998. And you didn't necessarily have that family, you mm-hmm. know, dynamics. And I just remember one thing: we played on Christmas Eve, matter of fact. Uh, but we always played Thanksgiving. Let me start there. We always played on Thanksgiving, so I always had all the family that would come up for that. But I just remember it was like 1999, and we played on Christmas Eve. And I remember sitting there, me and my boys is just sitting there, and I'm like wow, we really don't have nowhere to go to eat. And <laughs> literally, I'm like, what are we going to eat? We order pizza on Christmas Eve. Wow. And I said, well, you don't know what? I said, man, I said, if I'm ever in position, man, and blessed, I would always welcome my home up o- open to anybody. Yeah. And lo and behold, you know, Thanksgiving started growing. We started getting to 75 to 100 people on Thanksgiving. And then when I got to Pittsburgh, of course, I'm home and being that close to home. And I knew a lot of people were outside of Pittsburgh. I said, man, I don't ever want another person to feel the, you know, don't have yeah. an option. And um, ultimately, I would walk through the locker room and I would say, hey, guys, I'm not sure what you have to eat. I said, I know at some point, man, I said, you know, it's kind of hard because you don't feel like being around people's family, but yet you're mm-hmm. hungry. So what I will always make it to say, man, listen, you don't have to worry about come just grab a plate. If you just want to grab it to go box and go, don't feel obligated that you have to be around the family in that manner. I just want you to make sure you have something to eat. And lo and behold, that just started kind of picking up and guys felt comfortable. People started talking about it. And not only did they talk about it, they were just like, wow, your wife yeah. get hooked. And, <laughs> yeah. and ultimately, that kind of sold the deal as well. And then ultimately, you know, we open up our family and every Thanksgiving is literally 75 to anywhere from uh, 50 to 75. And of course, that number went down um, during yeah. the COVID years. But we still obviously open up our home to everybody. And see, it's, it's interesting you bring that up, Chuck, because I think a lot of people think we kid around when we say Pittsburgh operates. 
players. You know, I know the business take care of itself, but the players operate like that. You pass that on to me. RC pass it on. Max, Willie, like all those guys pass that on as far as, you know, that culture in that locker room is so inviting to where it felt like you had to be a part of the group, man. But before we went there, how how was Detroit for you, man? You joke around with it, like man. I I handed the ball off to uh <laughs> to, to 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 the bus and to uh to what's his name uh God, yeah, Barry Sanders, yeah, Barry Sanders. <laughs> God, Sinclair Cannon's gonna kill me. He's a huge Detroit Lions fan, uh, and and Sinclair's gonna kill me, man. Barry Sanders, you joked about that, but you've had some some running backs and some eras of football that can't be replaced. You mentioned 1999. Like Madden had just started at that time, Tuck. What was that transition from Detroit to Pittsburgh like for you? Yeah, it was one of those things. You know, when you're young and dumb, you don't know any better. You're just thinking, okay, this is how every organization is ran. I was blessed to be able to hand the ball off to Barry Sanders in 1998. Of course, I thought I would do so for many, many moons over. Of course, he shocked everybody by retiring that July of 1999, right before the season. So I only had that opportunity to play with him for one year. But as you go through it, you know, you just kind of, okay, not really understanding it, but you don't really get a sense of it until you actually move and move on to another organization. In Detroit, you know, the door was a revolving door was always open, multiple coaches, multiple head coaches, general managers. It Mm -hmm. just was crazy. And you get to that point, you're just like, wow, I don't know if this is ever, you know, this is with the nature of the NFL, but I don't like it. Yeah. And quite frankly, I'm just kind of, I love stability. And Growing up a Steelers fan, and I remember back in 1998 when I was with the when I was getting ready for the combine, I remember walking into the Steelers organization mm-hmm. and they had the suite set up in Indianapolis. And I said, "You want to know what, man? If I ever..." And this is me talking to Mr. Rooney, and this is me talking to Coach Cowher. I said, "Listen, I know you're not looking for a quarterback, but if I ever have the opportunity to play wow. for you, I will." And that opportunity presented itself in 2002. And I remember getting a call from Kevin Colbert, who now was the general manager. He was actually the second man in charge in Detroit. So Mm -hmm. he essentially drafted me. And he said, Charlie, hey, coach, want to meet with you? Let's sit down. And I remember I'm thinking, you know, this is going to be it. Back then, there was no post June 1 uh, cut cut dates. You had to wait until June 1st. So by the time I actually got to Pittsburgh, all OTAs were over. And then I got there. Kevin Colbert, like, hey, come down to the facility. I'm all suited and booted. I'm ready to go for my job interview. And he's like, no, we're going to take a ride. And we took a ride. We literally go like 30 minutes away and we're sitting in the gym because coach Cowher's kids are playing basketball. Wow. And I'm like, okay, he's at the top of the gym. I'm sitting in a suit. It's 90 degrees. You know, the air conditioner's not blowing in the summer. I'm sweating. And only, and the only thing I remember at that point, he said, Charlie, he said, why do you want to play for me? I said, coach, I said, number one, I grew up a fan. I'm a huge Steeler fan growing up in Homestead. I said, I became a fan of you and I became a fan of this Rooney organization. I said, I remember back in 1998 in Indianapolis and I popped into your suite. And I said, if I ever had an opportunity to play for you, this is the opportunity. So if you're welcoming, if you're welcoming me with open arms, I'm here and I'm ready to go. And he said, you want to know what? Sealed the deal. We shook hands. I said, coach, and by the way, can I take this tie off? Cause it's pretty damn hot. <laughs> and it's, you know, so he laughs, we take it off. We sit there and watch his kids finish the game. And from there, that's how I became a member of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Wow. Chuck, you, I've been around you for years and I never actually knew that story too, man. Uh, so, so just in, in, in general, like you, you were done with Detroit. You were looking for something else and Pittsburgh was away. Did being from Pittsburgh actually have to, you know, pretty much seal that deal for you too? 
It did, but you know, back back when we were in, when I was in Detroit, you know, two of my four seasons, we actually were uh, eight eight hundred uh, five hundred and above. We were eight and eight, nine and seven. Okay. Well, that nine that nine and seven year in two thousand was like wow. Everybody's like panicking, like dude, we're right there. We just need to kind of get over that hump. Yeah. But the four family just said, you want to know what? This isn't the way to go. We're now getting rid of everybody and anybody who was there prior to, especially with the voice and an opinion in the locker room, and they considered you that leader. They say, we have to get rid of you. Matt Millen came in in 2001, and that track record speaks for itself. I don't have to say any more about what Matt Millen did with that (laughs) franchise. So as we move forward, when I got to this point of in Detroit, it was just uh, from Detroit to Pittsburgh. It was like, this is the stability. You're talking about head coaches who don't necessarily go anywhere and have any opportunity to play for Bill Cowher for five years and then Mike Tomlin for six. Eleven of my years, the offense didn't change. Everybody felt comfortable and players wanted to be around each other. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was, you know, hey, we understand the, mom, the upfront money when it comes to that. Yeah. But ultimately, people were willing to sacrifice upfront dollars because they know the first three years were all going to work itself out. And it gave the opportunity for us to build something special in the manner in which we did. Man, Charlie, we're just getting started. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go to commercial break real quick and we'll pick back up with more Charlie Batch on the Ramon Foster show. This is this is going to be good. Y'all stick around. Welcome back to the Ramon Foster show. And there is a very special guest we have again, if you saw in the last segment, Charlie Batch. I told us like we got to pick back up with this basketball signing, man. Like, what is that, and and how do you get to that point? Like, the the, the means of operating these days is way different. Like now, it would have been a text. Now it would have been a Zoom call. Now it would have been a Zencaster or something. You wouldn't have met Coach Cower, Hall of Fame coach, and we'll get into that too. And at a basketball gym, watching his kids. Um, do you kind of miss that 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 method of of operating, you know, relationships in this era that we live in now? Yeah, it's definitely changed. You know, back then, you know, it, it just evolved and where it was to where it is now. And of course, technology is uh, obviously a lot more advanced. But mm-hmm. back then you had that personal connection and, and you were able to actually you you were forced to communicate. There was no texting to that point. And, you know, of course, when texting started to come in, you had to hit, you know, three, three times to hit C. And then you had to wait for two to hit A, you know. So it was it yeah. took too long. I'm wondering, well, let's just pick the daggone phone up and let's talk. And let's talk as men. And in this case, we were talking and face to face. And man, it was a really cool conversation. And we both smiled. And of course, he's from Carlington, Crafton area. I'm from mm-hmm. Homestead. It was a mutual respect and mutual connection that we had immediately. Man, and, and about those connections too, man, it was always, you know, there's, I always tell people, look, a team is built so many different ways, man. You got your superstars, you got your stars, you got your role play, you got people just that are important to the team. Like you fell into that, you're important to the team, uh, a side of things, Chucks, where when you asked to deliver, you did. You kept guys together. You kept guys informed and you saw different eras and just transitions that guys don't last for 15 years. Chuck, that says a lot about you. That says a lot about the organization's belief in you also and about your play, man. How was it for you seeing these guys come in and transition out? You go from Cordell to, you know, the Ben era from the Cowa era to, you know, the coach Tomlin. How did you manage that? What were the guys like during that time in the locker room also? 
Yeah, one thing about the NFL, you one thing you learn to adapt to change quickly. And I mentioned my my Detroit times and the multiple coaches that came through the door. And it's just the fact that you don't, you know, you try to build meaningful relationships. But obviously, when you come to an organization that has stability, it's like, okay, this is where we're at. And I enjoyed that. And, and you talk about, I had a chance in my 15 years, I played in three decades. I played yeah. in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. So most people can't even say that. So you see players who are evolving. And ultimately, you know, when I got here to Pittsburgh, you know, I thought I was only going to be here one year. I'm thinking wow. I'm gone the following year. 2003, I'm like, okay, what other starting opportunities are out there? Lo and behold, there wasn't. And it really was only uh, two. Chicago at the time was the only one looking for a starting job, uh, mm-hmm. so had a starting position open. Everything else was backups. I didn't get that Chicago job. They filled that pretty quickly. And then ultimately it was like, hey, if I'm a backup, I might as well be home. Yeah. And, at, you know, at that point was here 2003. Then I'm thinking this is going to be it. Well, we struggled. Tommy Maddox was the quarterback. I was the backup. And lo and behold, we went six and 10. At that point, I'm like, okay, things are going to change drastically. We were picking mm-hmm. out the top of the draft, huge conversation. We're going on with the quarterback position. I'm like, okay, I'm still trying to get an opportunity. Lo and behold, Ben Roethlisberger was drafted. That changed the whole dynamics of the franchise. People were really unsure at the time because they didn't know how Tommy Maddox was going to really take the drafting of Ben. Yeah. So they were actually getting ready to repair and say, hey, we're, if Tommy decides that he wants to leave, you know, we have to allow him to walk out the door. And Charlie, you may be the starter. Tommy accepted that role. Tommy was now the starter. And then ultimately they were preparing Ben to be what Ben is today. But wow. I remember when I met him after the draft, I was probably one of the first players that he met. And literally when he walked through that door and I'm in my mind, I'm like, I can't control who the team drafted. He's number <laughs> one. But ultimately there was an instant respect that was there because here I was, an Eastern Michigan grad. Here he mm-hmm. is, a Miami of Ohio grad. We had an instant Mid-American Conference connection. And mm-hmm. we know how difficult it is to get there. And from there, I'm like, hey, man, this is what it is. Boom, let's rock and roll. Hit it off immediately. Became friends right there. And from that moment on, as we're learning in the, in the meeting rooms, he realized quickly, Charlie is out for my best interest. Mm-hmm. And the information I was providing him was now transitioning into the field. So that allowed us to kind of evolve. And of course, evolving from the young player going from rookie to second year. And then when we got to that 2005 season, we saw something special. Like, man, this guy really can bring it. And he got when, you, when you say that, like, what was the difference from you seeing Tommy Maddox, you yourself? And I'll say this too: me, me recognizing, like, I recognized there was a difference when Pounce walked in. Like, and everybody else did too. Was it that for y'all? Like, he moved a little different, the ball was was separated from everybody else like what was that 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 it thing that you're talking about yeah for me I, it really you know what we saw on the field it was you know you saw all the physical attributes okay he can throw okay. the ball he can move around okay then he's starting to extend plays in the practice field you're like okay it's OTAs this isn't going to work once the pads yeah. come on and then lo and behold that was he was doing that in games and everybody like oh that does work he's making <laughs> it work and it ultimately became you know people started talking about oh he's playing sandlot football and that wasn't necessary. He was in some cases he was, but he was making plays and the receiver mm-hmm. were working with him. For me, that it factor was walking into a meeting room. And back then we still were working on VHS tapes. It was, so the Steelers were probably the last team to transition from VHS tapes to digital. That's not a, that's not a lie. That is a 100 percent factual. So at that point, coaches would always keep rewinding it and rewinding it and rewind. Before you know it, you get through one play, you're rewinding it 20 times. Yeah. For me, I realized at an early at an early age or early on that Ben only needed to see it once. Wow. When you saw it, when you showed it to him once, you bored him twice, 
he was falling asleep by the, the third rewind. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, is that just this play? But he did it every single play. Yeah. But ultimately, he got the knack and people started kind of throwing out there to say, well, he's the last in the building, but the first to leave. He didn't need all of that. And for mm-hmm. me, I, val- I I was able to validate that because sitting in the meeting rooms, understanding how he learned and being mm-hmm. able to transition that on the field, that was that it factor for me that I knew this guy's going to be talented. And, and, and I've always kind of spoken about this too, like the franchise quarterback that starts and the guys that are behind him, like your role with him, I don't think people appreciate it as much as we should have too. And I, uh, that's the same thing I kind of say about Troy Palomalo and Ryan Clark. Like everybody needs somebody to kind of guide and help them to like being comfortable in that role though, Chuck, like a lot of people are, aren't willing to be in your spot, even as you know, when in the Super Bowl. Even as going back and winning the Super Bowl again, uh, all the things that come with that franchise guy, what was that like for you in your position too? Because this is about, you know, you and your journey as far as taking on that role. Some guys just can't do it. Yeah, and it's tough, and you know, and it gets to the point, but it took me back to my rookie year. Okay. My rookie year, and my backup at the time was a, some dude by the name of Frank Wright, right? <laughs> so here he is as the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. That's people people remember him as. Yeah. But remember his time when I K got offense in Buffalo, he was Jim Kelly's backup. Mm. In his 15th year, he was my backup. And literally, he would always come in. You would have coaches come in with their game plans. And in Buffalo, him and Jim Kelly had to create the game plan. So Jim would always have their own game plan and he would compare and contrast with the coaches in there. But yet what he did with to me and with me off the field and saying, now I'm going to teach you as a young guy. I said, man, if I'm ever in that position, that's who I'm going to be as a backup. And I couldn't do anything else about it. When I got to Pittsburgh, lo and behold, Ben Roethlisberger was young. We connected and I now put myself in Frank Wright situation. Now, it was tough because I wanted to play as a competitor. We all want to play. But when you're that quarterback, you're probably the only one not getting into the game. <laughs> and, and that was something that I had to learn. But at that point, I really had to learn to lead from behind. And okay. when I say that, meaning learn to lead, you still gain the respect of teammates just in mm-hmm. case you have to come in, but also make it non-threatening to the starter that I'm not trying to take his job. Empower yes. him. Empower him to a point that he now is a leader but also understand that I don't need credit for things that I helped you with. And that evolved him into the leader. And that ultimately allowed him to flourish into the manner of now eventually taking on that leadership role. Because at a young age, he didn't have to. We had Jerome Bettis. We had Hams Ward with Joey Porter. All of these mm-hmm. guys were the leaders on the team. He wasn't the vocal guy at the time because he didn't was just coming to. into his own. He didn't have to. And he was trying to come into his own and now figuring out how he can ma- manipulate both sides of the ball and become that leader that people respected. Man, and I think, you know, sometimes, you know, we speak about that locker room, Chuck, like just in general, like it's a lot of like guys want to push guys forward. They want to see you win. You know, you cover the games in Pittsburgh, uh, the live color. And by the way, love the way you're on there. Every once in a while, you give me a shout out. You have mentioned Keisha and the boys. <laughs> so I appreciate that. We listen. Um, but but with that being said, though, Chuck, we, we, we hold each other accountable. You know, the offensive line this past week was kind of. It was a little sticky, okay, watching them, man. And um, from your perspective, though, like if, if you've had guys reach out and ask questions about the locker room or you speak in situations where, hey, we got to start correcting stuff, like the level of self-checking, the level of, look, let me be better than what I was when I got here and not just me, my teammates, that's the DNA of that locker room. 
And I think a lot of people, when you when you say that, a lot of people, you know, you learn that from the veteran guys and you kind of it's passed on. It's passed. And, and these are things that, you know, you're starting to kind of see that. But when you now have this young team with all of that veteran leadership pretty much left yeah. all at once. And then you add that on top of COVID, a lot of the veteran guys weren't able to be around in the manners that we used to be able to see all of our other brothers being Mm -hmm. able to walk into that locker room. So that was a challenge. And even for myself doing, you know, the media here because the NFL had three tiers and there were only certain amount of players. I could not be around the locker room in that manner. They said, Charlie, you could come up here and you want to be part of your media obligation. You can stand on the balcony, but you have to enter and exit the same place. Wow. Why would I do that? Mm -hmm. There's no reason for me to come to practice because my interaction is being around the guys and taking the temperature for what's going on and seeing how I can be a resource in that manner. Obviously, you know, the manner that I've done that since I retired, this is now my 10th year. So for eight of these years, I'm around the team. And that was something I was taken away from. And then you lose the veteran presence. And then you ultimately kind of see where this is. These young guys don't even know. They don't even know what Latrobe looked like Yeah, in that manner. This was the first year that they went to Latrobe. So to hear about the history of St. Vincent's and why we're here, the team camaraderie, Team bonding, they didn't have that until this year because everything was done at, at, at Heinz Field, not Akershore Stadium now. I know, man. And, and uh, one thing that you've always done, you press guys the same way you push Ben and um, just anybody. Dennis Dixon was another guy that, you know, you, you help push and try to curate within that room. Like your role with the PA. I, I know we have this question a lot of the time, Chuck, and, and you being the big dog that led the way through these negotiations in 2011, man, if you could why did you get involved with the PA? Why did you select me as one of your guys? It was like, hey, Mo, I never get the conversation. You, sh- you should pay more attention. You know, like that's where we were. And and just, you know, why did you guys instruct us and inform us on that 2011 lockout? Like, nah, don't do it. We're, we're going to it was 31 to one and we were the one. Uh, just walk us through a little bit of that, man, because this has always just been your role, Chuck. Yeah. And for me, really, it started when I was a young guy as a rookie. And and now literally, I'm listening. We had a veteran team in 1998. We had the Robert Porches. He was the veteran. Uh, he was actually the player rep. We had Luther mm-hmm. Ellis, who was the alternate rep. And I would hear those guys conversate. And I'm like, what are y'all talking about? Yeah. And I wanted to be a part of it. And my agent at the time was Tom Condon, who was with IMG, now CAA. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he's like, man, be a sponge, learn and listen to those guys, because now you'll understand the business side. And once you understand the business side, you won't take it as personal. And <laughs> I got to that point where I started listening for then. Then I transitioned. So I wasn't I didn't officially have the role because Porsche was there. Yeah. I got to uh, Pittsburgh in 2002. Actually, uh, Kimo Von often. And then you had Alan Fanica was the player reps at the time. And ultimately, listening to those guys, still being a part of it. And then official role for me didn't happen until 2005 when Alan Fanica was no longer the player rep. I was voted upon uh, with my, by my peers. That was a huge, you know, I wore that, like, you know, with a badge of honor because I'm like, wow, you're voted for this position. You're not giving it. Yeah. So the players spoke and I felt like, okay, you're putting me in this position. You obviously believe in what I'm capable of uh, providing as a leader ultimately learned a lot more, making sure that our players were always educated. And it was a little easier only because our core of guys all stayed together. Yeah. So we were making sure that we were formed. You go through it, but it wasn't until everybody realized in 2009 that an uncapped year was happening in 2010. Ultimately, young guys coming in, I wanted to make sure as the player rep they, that my team was not 
provided the information from what they were seeing on the television. Mm-hmm. I now was making sure that the information that was insider information that was passed on, if you choose to do what you want to do with that information, that is completely on you. And one thing that you can never say that you were never informed. I was going to over-inform you versus under-inform you. And that was something that I wore with a badge of honor. And I think this is something that when you now fast forward to the 2011 season, it was challenging. And everybody was all over the place. And everybody just wanted to get back and play. And no one really understood what the lockout meant. But our players did. So when we now were fighting, and at the time we were fighting for benefits, that's always going to be number one fight. But number two was the personal conduct policy. We were fighting because at the time, you know, James Harrison was getting fined for hitting people too hard. Like, are you kidding me? We're playing football. Yeah. What do you mean he's hitting people too hard? So he was getting fined with that. And of course, you know, there was other challenges that we had throughout the team. We were fighting for the personal conduct policy. And at yep. that point, I said, listen, here's what it looks like. And at that point, I said, man, if the personal conduct policy doesn't change, we're not voting for this. And because we were the only team essentially dealing with personal conduct policies at the time, nobody heard us out. Nope. And at that point, this is before Bounty Gate, mm-hmm. when the Saints were doing there. This is before Deflate Gate, when Tom Brady you know, was going through his. So now you're talking about Drew, Drew Brees, you're talking about Tom Brady. And then for me, I took it one step further. We're talking about Tattoo Gate. And Tattoo Gate was the Terrell Pryor at no. Ohio State. Yes! So people for me were like, why are you concerned about Tattoo Gate? Because number one, Terrell Pryor is my cousin. Number two, he's trying to get to the NFL and getting to the NFL. You're now you're now uh, punishing him. Yeah. What he did in college to provide for his family by selling his merchandise, providing some autographs. And he gets five games in the National Football League that he wasn't even a part of. So to get five games. And then you talk about the flake gate and Tom Brady only gets four. You're telling me, okay, conduct detrimental to the, to the organization or the club or this national football league brand is not as important as a tattoo. Wow. So tattoo, you get five versus four in deflate gate. That was something for me. I always pressed. I wanted to make sure no one would ever question my integrity. And when that vote happened, regardless of what was going on with me personally, 31 to one, my guys made sure that they were able to believe in me. And guess what? Here we are 10 years later, still talking about the goddamn personal conduct policy as we see everything that's going on. We were ahead of it. Challenges still occur. And right now, it's still not a simple form, a simple uh, formula as it relates to what is personal conduct policy, what's not. The the suspensions are all over the place. And these were things that I was passionate about back then. And it's still we're talking about it to this day. And right, and even to this day, Chuck, they still botched it again with a moderator, with a mediator again. Yes. Uh, but as you can tell, it's always been my passion, too. As soon as you told me about it, like you say, you can't take the business personally, understanding everything around it, Chuck. And, and just in general, when we deal with these types of things, because everybody won't ball. But the ball right. got to be right for everybody involved, meaning the fans, meaning the players, meaning everybody that consumes it. And that's one thing that you said. I always told my guys, even through me helping negotiate this last one, y'all are going to be overly informed. If I Absolutely. don't have an answer, I'm going to get you an answer and I'm going to make sure that you know, look, yes or no, this is the right thing for us this next time around, Chuck. So I, I, think, I appreciate and, and, you doing that. 
Not a problem. And I think, to, you know, to your point of why you're saying, why did I identify you? I saw you as that young leader, even though you thought, hey, I'm a young drafted guy. I still got a lot to <laughs> prove, did. but you still were vocal. You still had a presence about you, but it was an aura that people followed with you. And even though you were that undrafted guy, not lock, not offensive line, you were the leader of that. I don't care if you have two first rounders in front of you with David DeCastro and, and Marquise Pouncey. You were that guy that everybody gravitated, gravitated to. So when I saw that, I'm like, hey, understand the business side. You'll yeah. understand when it comes down to contracts. Okay, what are you looking to do? Open your eyes. And now making sure that every player in that locker room understands what they're doing. Now we identified another young talent, and it took us a while to kind of get him on board. That was a young young fellow at the time with Marquise Pouncey. Yep. So, of course, we're like, Pounce. And literally, I remember me and you are sitting down in Orlando and we're like, Pounce, we know you're down in Lakeland, brother. We're going to get your butt up here. And I don't care care if you got to bring your brother, Mike, with you. Get up here to understand the business at. And from that moment on, when they walked into that room, they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. But from that moment on in 2013 is when Marquise and Mike became more informed about the players union and they now took on a leadership role. Mm-hmm. And man, that was something just for me. I knew y'all were going to be around a long time, but I also understood that y'all were very knowledgeable and was going to understand what was going on with the collective bargaining agreement. Absolutely, man. Uh, we we got to end this segment, Chuck. We can go on, but we have another segment, the one that everybody know and love, man. We'll call uh, the Hey Moan segment with Charlie Batch. We'll see y'all in a second. Welcome back to the Ramon Foster Show. And this is a segment which everybody loves, man. The Hey Moan segment. And I'm going to control this one this time around. I won't say Hey Moan. I'm going to say Hey Chuck. Uh, we were talking briefly on the uh, break before we came back. And you mentioned something that's going to transition into some things about you again, man. You said the player is the last person to know that they're actually done. And, of course, I know you aren't done with everything that you do around Pittsburgh, man. I want to bring a highlight to the Charlie Bash Foundation, man, the way you do your toy drives every year, all the things that you do in where you're from in Homestead. Not just that, but Charlie Bash. I don't know if you've released it yet. I don't know if you're ready. No, you're going to say it on this this program. You you have a building, like, where you're from, that people can come and be better than they were from the neighborhood – Take us down that road, Charlie, as we, you know, you realizing that you were done, but not in your community, man. Walk us through that. Yeah. So for the last 22 years, we have a foundation, which is called Best of the Batch Foundation. We're an educational foundation. We focus mainly on reading computer literacy, along with our STEAM programs. And we currently serve 3,800 kids annually throughout eight counties throughout southwestern Pennsylvania. But we've been in our building for 17 years. So as we're conducting program out of it, we're using literally every inch of space. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I were sitting back at Tasha and I'm like, hey, what do you think about possibly expanding? Mm-hmm. So we wanted the initial goal was kind of maybe if we could acquire the building next to ours, we could can make, you know, a little connector and that would be yeah. our expanding our computer lab. But our vision wasn't our vision. It was God's plan. And we ultimately found out that there was a third parcel, the second parcel that we were acquiring, literally in a, it's a, van, a, a vacant, a van, abandoned property tax program. It was a vacant yeah. building and ultimately was working through it and literally found out if you are a nonprofit within 500 feet of a vacant property and you take care of it, the state of deed it to you free and clear. Wow. So at that point, we're like, wow, we have two parcels. <laughs> so then we actually go to, you know, we find out the third parcel and all of a sudden we're like, OK, F&B Bank owns it. And we're like, OK, damn, they're asking ninety two thousand for it. So we explain this project to him. We're like, listen, here's our big vision. Man, we would love for you to be a part of it, but we can't afford $92,000 for this right now. They said, make us an offer. 
I said 10. They said, dang. They said, deal. I said, damn. I should have said five. So, <laughs> so here we are now with three parcels under our belt. And we're just like, wow. Like people are buying into what we're trying to do. And then ultimately, we started kind of going around with community partners and explaining our vision. And we started getting more and more support. As we now got to a certain point, we're like, wow, we think we're ready for this. Wow. And we went through it. The, uh, we demoed the property. So this is like, OK, we're getting this is getting real when the fencing is around it. Ended up uh, demoing the parcels and then ultimately said, this is the vision. And mm-hmm. then, you know, said, Moan, hey, you, you know, what do you got going on? You know, and like you and Pounce showed up for our groundbreaking yeah. and we had yep. a lot of community support. And everybody, all they could see at that time was a building and a diagram. That was it. it. This is really what you're trying to build. We're like, yes, we are. And lo and behold, we started building the building and people were just like, wow. And it was unbelievable to get to that point. Now, I would highly advise nobody to build a building in COVID because when they go from a six to eight week delivery to a 16 to 18 week delivery, oh, they mean every bit of 18 Uh. weeks. And ultimately, those are the things, the challenges that we had over top of it. But as we were putting this in and we're thinking to ourselves, how can we continue to focus on STEAM? We say STEAM and not STEM only because we include the A for arts. So we have a lot of our young women, young young ladies that are literally involved in the arts, the dance, the therapies and those type of things that involve with the arts element. So we're going to add that in here. So now we go from possibly putting, okay, we have a bigger conference room. We're talking about gaming and coding. We're talking activity rooms. We're a state-of-the-art educational facility. We don't call it a school because when you start talking about charter school, public school teachers take threat to that, thinking that they're going to lose jobs. Yeah. That's not who we are. We're a state, we're an educational facility, so we have to play on our words correctly. So as we ended up continuing to build off of this, you're talking gaming and coding, activity rooms, dance studio, mm-hmm. gymnasium. And then ultimately we have UPMC who has taken a lower level. And we actually have a medical practice in our facility because we don't have these type of facilities in our communities. So now when you're talking about underserved communities, they're thinking MedExpress, the urgent cares. I'm not knocking that. But what you don't have is a PCP. Yeah. These, Families think that those are their PCPs. So at the beginning of the school year, they're now trying to get their medical records, trying to track people down. They miss three weeks of school because they don't even have the proper records. So we now need this into our community. They opened up May 1st. Our our building officially opened up June 13th. And literally, we went from 5,300 square feet to 33,000 square feet. So when people see this building, I love the reaction when they walk and say, wow. I didn't I didn't expect to see this. And the first thing in my mind is, what the hell did you expect to see (laughs) if you're making that comment? But for me, I'm like, okay, now, okay, we're going to walk you through this because you're you're going to see something right now that is not in our area. And when you get to that point of having and walking them through it, all of a sudden the kids walk through it. Mm -hmm. They get excited about it. And literally uh, the Wi-Fi is free in every inch of the building that they are in. Comcast, who is a community partner of ours. Literally, they are they are committed to provide free Wi-Fi server mm-hmm. for a thousand community centers around the country. It's called Lift Zones, and on the Lift Zones, it don't matter if you're a church, YMCA, Boys and Girls Club. If you are deemed a community center, mm-hmm. they will come in and provide that. 
And we were the first in our region here in southwestern Pennsylvania that now come in and they consider themselves deep blue. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell deep blue means, <laughs> but we're going to go with it. Obviously, yeah. it, it just depends on all of the the way that the data points are and how fast the speed of Internet service is that if you have 100 and 200 people on a, a Wi-Fi server, the speed does not shut down. Right. So we are there. We have it. And we are looking and they are looking for more community partners to provide free Internet service because now. You know, when you've asked, if you ask a kid, you know, or do they have Internet service? Most of them pick up their phone and say, yeah, I have yeah. Uh, access to my phone. Well, you can't do your homework off of it. Oh, so ultimately we had to now provide it. And when you enter into COVID, we never shut down. We were deemed essential. Wow. So we actually had to now provide 100 families for free Wi-Fi and Internet service. So when you're talking to Comcast, they're like, hey, we're going to cut you 100 individual bills. I'm like, no, you're not. You know what we're trying to do. And we're going to consolidate those 100 families. We'll cut you one check. So we were providing internet service during the time of COVID because families just not did not, yeah. number one, have equipment at home. They did not have internet service at home. So what, what, were you, what we're used to and what other people are used to in their homes, these other sort of communities did, did not have that. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, we provided comfort baskets, all of these essential items that families would tend to overlook as mm-hmm. they were trying to just to keep their head above water during COVID. We went in, didn't matter, favorite fruit snacks. You know, any any type of snack that they had, towels, pillows, any all, all of these yeah. things that parent fam, family would overlook, we provided that for them. And those were things that we essentially did over the course of those two years, but also created learning pods because what was happening, a lot of people as families started to kind of go back to school, mm-hmm. a lot of kids were logging into school. But then they would put their iPad down. It would face up to the ceiling. And then for six weeks, even though they were deemed in school, they were failing with the progress reports. So then now the parents are getting upset with the teachers and saying, why don't you tell me? Well, your child is actually in school. It's just the fact that they're not doing the work. So mm-hmm. they, we had to create those learning pods to now get them into our building, which uh, it would made it easier because we had college students who were home from school at the time, still going through school. Mm-hmm. They were now able to now access and serve as mentors to them to keep those kids accountable to make sure that they did their homework. It was a challenge all yeah. around. And over those two years, we're still seeing that because now just from a social impact standpoint, yep. these kids now need learn. They need help learning to communicate with one another again. Because yeah. all they did was look at screens for two years and to get them back. They were literally we had to do so many icebreakers just to get them back Talking. to speaking to each other. Yeah, it was it was crazy. But this building provides all of that. And we are eager to show it off. And we invite anybody who are around the Pittsburgh area. Just pop in and see what we have going on. Because we'll have a big groundbreaking up at some point. But ultimately, as we now continue to open up in this soft opening Please, anybody who's there, please, you're by, by all means, please stop by. We'd love to show you what we're doing. So so stopping points for people who are listening to us right now uh, on a, a Ramon Foster show with Charlie Batch is, okay, uh, Pamela, um, let's go to Acreshore slash uh, Hinesville, uh, DK Pittsburgh Sports Downtown, and Charlie Batch's uh, Foundation and Homestead. Those are, the, those are the stops that are necessary, right? Not necessarily in that order, but those are necessary stops on your trips to Pittsburgh, Chuck. Yeah, absolutely it is. And anybody who wants to know where we're at, if you want to know more information as far as where we're located at, they can go to batchfoundation.org. You'll be able to see all of the programs. If you're interested in becoming a volunteer, which we're truly humbled because we have over 700 people who actually believe in the mission and vision that we're trying to accomplish at the foundation, 
man, this is going to be awesome. We truly appreciate you coming through and, and let us know what you're interested in. And we would mm-hmm. love to work with you uh, from that manner. Again, it's batchfoundation.org. And we'll put that in the link also in the description. And Chuck, not just, you know, w- what you're doing at your building at Homestead, but it's, you're also, you do stuff around Christmas. You do stuff around the community in general, man. Speak on that, too, because that was one of the first introductions we had, man. My wife was bringing to us the Charlie Bash's toy, toy drive and the waterfront, man. And it, I, I remember watching it grow from, okay, we just got the front room. And then I remember you guys, man, we're, we're filled up to the back. Like, that's where you're at. And you don't care if it's new, used. It was, well, it was that way before COVID. New, used, where it brings something because, as you said, where you're from and where you're distributing these funds and these toys is, look, they just don't have that in general. Right. And I think that's something that where, you know, it started back in 2004, 2005 and we started uh, collecting toys and we were donated to different organizations. And ultimately, you know, we didn't have control of it. And, mm-hmm. our, and the reason why we didn't have control, we were depending on ever, someone else to make that decision. And it rubbed us the wrong way because the organization that we were donating to actually, you know, we had all of these toys and then you saw another truck come up. Some of the toys that didn't make it back to the warehouse, the most expensive toys. And we we felt some tight way about it. And I won't say the organization because you know, it, w- it w- could have been just some bad, you know, it, it was a scar that, that you had to peel. Yeah. It, was, it was a bandage you had to peel off to figure Absolutely. out what it, what it actually was. Yeah. Right. And at that point, it literally got to the point that we we're going to take ownership of this. So as we started okay. collecting unwrapped toys from that moment, we ended up uh, now saying we're going to collect them unwrapped. And then we have a big wrapping party. And then we would have people who come over and wrap gifts. And then from there, we would work with approved organizations, guidance counselors within school districts that now knew the family dynamics better than we did. Mm-hmm. So now that I provided the uh, opportunity to make sure that we knew where these toys were going and making sure that the family in need are the ones that actually received them. So from there, we wrapped it. We have all of our volunteers that will help wrap the gifts on Christmas Eve. Latasha and I, along with our team, mm-hmm. will actually go out and actually deliver the toys on Christmas Eve. And so, you know, turns out to be a long day, but out of that 150 families that we have, you know the names, you know, when you're rapping, okay, here's little Mikey, he's four years old. Okay, here's little Keisha, she's three years old. So, you know who you're rapping for. We just don't show up and provide provide a a present and say, hey, here you go, you get one present. We personalize it to try to separate us from other organizations. And right now, here we are 15 years later, and we wow. we typically, during the holiday time, we give over 8,000 toys. And it's truly a blessing to see all of the people that come on on a Saturday and just help rap and have fun and listen to Christmas music. It's just putting everybody into the spirit <laughs> because it's just truly a blessing. And, of course, we always end it at the Women's Center and Shelter. Um, and we make sure that that is our last stop because, that, unfortunately, you have families that are uh, you know in, in situations that they don't need to be in. And it's just making sure that those children are and, and families are the ones that actually are able to provide on Christmas Eve. And it's just it's it's a challenge. And no matter when you hear one story, you thought you heard it again. You won't hear anything worse than that. And you right. hear another one. And when you walk into some of these places, man, if you know, you have a tear, you got to keep it together because it's, it's, it's definitely tough. You know, you just like, wow. And hopefully we're doing our small part to put a, a smile on the family's faces during the holiday time. And, and what's so interesting, man, as we wrap up, man, I, I was never the type to take on the foundation because you have to have the, the ability to sustain it, uh, not be busy enough to, to actually take it on uh, and also the, meet the expectations of it, too. So, Chuck, from 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 you being a, a Pittsburgh Steeler to, you know, just the way you've been an ambassador to all young players that's come around this league, man, I, I just needed to bring light to that just simply because. Guys do these charities. You see the softball games. You see the toy drives. You see all of these drives. 
And then four or five years, we don't hear from it again. So if you could go follow Charlie Batch and all his uh, all his platforms, hit the link below, man, and just show support to a guy that's actually in the neighborhood, in the city. Uh, know people that are involved directly with the, his foundation, man, and, and support whichever way you can. I'm sure, Chuck, like I said, we're going to put the link in the description below. But uh, finish us up, Chuck, and lead us wherever you want to lead us to, man. Drop your platforms. Let us know when you're going to be broadcasting games and all of those types of things. Yeah, it's, it's all good, man. I think, you know, this is something that obviously, you know, people remember me as a football player, but obviously, you know, you want to be remembered as that community leader. And there's a quote that I live by, and it's by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And it's a quote that says, do not go where the path may lead. Go instead where there is no path and leave a trail. Like, man. I can't sit up here and tell somebody, you know, what it's going to take for them to become a 15-year NFL veteran. All we know, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. For me, mm-hmm. that impact started when I lost my sister back in 1996 and she, to census gang violence. She, she never had an opportunity to live life. And when you look at the news, the first five to 10 minutes are always negative. And back then, we were that top story. And we wow. wanted to make sure that nobody else felt that. And even to this day, when I see those stories, it still reminds me, it puts me back in 1996. But we're just trying to continue to go out here and put smiles on kids' faces throughout, you know, regardless of what it is during the, during the seat, during the year or during what season it is. So those are things that they're very passionate to Latasha and I, and we truly thank everybody that has supported us along the way. We appreciate you, Ramon. We appreciate Keish, Keish as she's going through and literally get to that point, man, is young pups. And to see yeah. where you all are, man, we are super proud of you and your family and thank what you all have done. And we truly appreciate you uh, for what you've done for us. So thank you for everything that you've done. And thank you to everybody else out there watching. No doubt, man. And again, uh, from any player we've had on here to listen and, to and talk. And I also can't include, I can't, I can't forget my guy, Miles and RJ. Tell him yeah, I no doubt about it, man. <laughs> well, growing up, RJ might be as tall as you now, Chuck. I saw the pictures, man. Oh, I saw it's like, crazy. Wow. It's now, crazy. Now, no, back back when we were playing uh, in the YMCA when he was yeah. shooting around, like I know right now, I may not be able to take him down low anymore. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's gonna try to body you, man. But as I've always said, people listen to me, they be like, the locker room can't be that way. And like, no. Almost every guy we'll have on here. And Chuck, thank you, man. And we had another Pittsburgh guy, John Malecki, man. We support him and his endeavors, too. But you hear the consistency of what the Pittsburgh Steelers locker room is. And not just that, the players that go in and out of those doors, man. Uh, True testament to to what we lay down and what we expect coming forward, too, from from that team and organization, man. Uh, Charlie, thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. Congratulations on all your success, man. Seriously. Appreciate it.